Please open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 3. We just read the story of David's restoration from his sin with Bathsheba. And if you think about the Christian life, we can look at somebody like David and we see he's loved by God, a man after God's own heart. God has taken him from being the least of his brothers, a shepherd in the field, forgotten by the family when the family is summoned, to giving him fame and glory and power as a soldier, as a hero, as a leader, to giving him the kingdom that Saul had lost due to his sin, to preserving him through the wilderness until Saul finally dies, giving him Saul's house, giving him rain, and he stumbles. He takes Bathsheba, murders her husband, a deep fall. But he lives in that sin, and he lives in it for a while. The child is born, the child is growing before God sends the prophet. And he is confronted for his sin. He repents of his sin. He seeks God's face again. And God is with him and blesses him even greater than before. So he had this climb up of holier and better and he falls and then he climbs back up again because of his repentance. And that is often the way the Christian life is. When somebody seems to be doing well, they fall and they never get up, you've got to worry. Uh, the person who thinks they're always going up and have never stumbled, you've got to worry. Uh, David is a man after God's own heart and a man whom we can see some of ourselves in and that we do stumble from time to time. And that's really what we're looking at today. Our service text is verses 12 through 14 of Philippians 3, but we'll read the whole chapter because the whole chapter builds up and is centering really on this thought, this idea that we have in the next two days, or next two sermons. So Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write you the same things is no trouble to me and safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel with the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, 
that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. In our text today, not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, (coughs) I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destruction, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we look at this text today, understanding that we are not yet perfect, but pushing on towards the goal, we pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding, give us ears to hear, a heart to receive, and a will to transform. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now he starts off in verse 12 saying, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect. What is he talking about? What has he not obtained? Well, really what's in the previous verse. He's talking about obtaining the glory of God in his resurrection. He's talking about the righteousness that comes from God. He's talking about the power of the resurrection. He's talking about sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that he may obtain the resurrection of the dead. He's talking about that perfection that will bring him to heaven. Now, the Greek word here, perfection, is talking about really completion, perfect in that it is completed. It has all the things it needs. And in the New Testament, it's often used like that, to be finished or to be accomplished or to be complete and perfect. And in our context, as I said, he's talking about the loss of all things that he might have Christ his goal. Now, we know from Paul's teaching that once we have faith, once we are ingrafted into the body of Christ, we are reconciled with God. Um, Romans 5 talks about this in 8 through 10. God chose his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We have been reconciled to God. We are no longer in danger of hell. 
We've been forgiven our sins. We've been adopted as sons, given an inheritance, and it's guaranteed, along with our place in heaven. God being rich in his mercy, Ephesians 2, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace have you been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace have you been saved through by faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk. We have a guaranteed place in heaven through the blood of Christ. That is guaranteed to us, our salvation, our eternal life. But in reality, we don't have that yet in our hand. Right? It's future, it's hoped for, it's coming. It's not yet here. We're not yet achieving that perfection of eternity with God, but we have been promised, we've been guaranteed it. It cannot fail, as we learned in John chapter 6, 37 through 40. Everyone the Father gives to me will come to me, and I will never cast him out. Down in verse 40, and this is the will of my Father, whoever looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We have that. We haven't received it, but it is ours. And we know through faith that it belongs to us. Paul here, I think, is looking for something a little beyond that, though. He's looking at that advancement of our faith, the continuing of our faith, or putting to death our sins and our old fleshly self and being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. As we are told in Colossians 3, 5 through 10, put to death whatever is of your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the count of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. We are being renewed. We are a new creation in Christ and we are being transformed. We are not instantly transformed to perfection. Right? We are being transformed. Being renewed. And this is important in what Paul has in mind in this passage. He's aiming at that desire that we might have that full fellowship with God. And he's working towards that goal of being with God, of being one with him enjoying his presence in his life. And he adds that this has not yet arrived. That entire fellowship with Christ's sufferings is not his yet. That taste of the resurrection is not his yet. He has not yet been raised to eternal life. But he knows these things and he believes in them and he trusts in them and he's teaching us and giving us an example that we need to make progress towards that goal of being one with Christ. And the ways of doing that is 
talking about our sanctification, our life being more and more like Christ until we are with him in the end. Now, perfection has been a problem for people in the church down to the ages. There have always been perfectionists who believe that they have achieved that perfection that is being discussed. But Paul certainly does not believe that he has attained it. In spite of all the blessings he has, in spite of all the things he has done, in spite of all that he has suffered for God, he acknowledges that I have not yet obtained this. He says that, I have not obtained it already. I do not consider that I have made it my own, he says down in verse 13. He knows that he's not perfect. John tells us in 1 John 1, 8 through 10, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, according to John. If the truth is not in us, then we don't have salvation. We're not God's people. And notice, if we say we have no sin, we have sin right to this very day. When we were talking the other day at Presbytery, they asked me about that, and I said that my testimony, and I mentioned that the very first sermon I ever heard, the pastor got up and said, you know, all men are sinners, talking about Romans 3, and he said, I am a sinner. Paul is saying, here, I have not obtained perfection. He's still a sinner in heart, still a sinner indeed. Not perfect yet. But notice John goes on to say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just as David, who committed adultery, then committed murder to cover up the adultery, and then went on living in his sin, just as he was cleansed from his sin by repenting, so can we. If we confess our sins to the Lord and ask for forgiveness, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, we should never think that we have achieved perfection. And the longer we're a Christian, the more we begin to understand God and his word, the closer we draw to him, the further we see the distance is. He is not saying that he has attained it. When we think of perfection in the terms of what Paul is saying, perfection is not attainable in this life. Perfection is also not being the most conservative. Uh, I've heard before people say that, you know, the, the more conservative you are, the more God will love you. you know, give up your TV, uh, give up your coffee because it has a drug in it, give up this, give up this, give up this, and then the more extreme you are, the more, the more godly you are. Uh, Deuteronomy 4.2 says, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I commanded you. And in chapter 12.32 of the same book, Deuteronomy, he says, Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. You know, in the modern age, in Bible-believing churches, people think of you know, the liberals who take things away are the evil ones. 
And yes, they're evil. But the conservatives who add things to the word are just as evil. They're just as far from God. It's not being the most conservative, it's being the most biblical. And they're not the same. The mind of man is not the mind of God. Being perfect does not mean despising everyone who is weak, everyone who is confused, everyone who is ignorant, everyone who disagrees with you. Remember Romans 14, Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may need everything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. He's talking about the battle they were having about the meat being sacrificed to idols and then sold in the market, and some people thinking that tainted them. Paul tells them in the book and in his other writings, that's foolish. You know, if you thank God for the meat, eat it, no problem. But he's saying, how do you treat the weak? Say, ah, you're weak, get out. No. Being holy, being perfect, isn't about throwing them out. It's about welcoming them, supporting them, encouraging them, teaching them. God says in this passage through Paul that in time, verse 15, if you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. In time you will learn, you will grow. You don't grow outside the church, outside the teaching. You grow in the church. Now, this isn't saying that you can then tolerate people who are teaching the wrong thing, because Paul is pretty harsh on stomping on them, telling them they'd remain silent, putting them out of the church if they insist on teaching things that are wrong, but welcoming the weak. Now, perfection in Christ is not also being all love. We know God is love, John, 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And there are people today who go around saying, well, if you hate sin and you tell sinners they're going to hell, you don't love. And therefore you're not perfect. Um, that's not true. In Second Chronicles 19.2, we read the story of Jehoshaphat helping Ahab and going to war with him and God sends Jehu the prophet. And he says to the king Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, the wrath of God has gone out against you. The wrath of God, not just displeasure, but consequence. There would be suffering because he helped those who hate God. He helped the wicked. David, the man after God's own heart, whom we read about this morning, his sin and his restoration, in Psalm 139 says in verse 21 through 24, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What does it mean to love? To love sin? No, it means to love God, to love the things God loves. God loves repentance, and so we should love repentance and call sinners to it. But note that the lo loving God involves hating his enemies. 
And so these people who think God is love and therefore we must love all sin and not speak against it, that is not what perfection is. They are confused. What is perfection? I hinted at it earlier, being the most biblical. True doctrine, the battle in this chapter, why I read from the beginning, the Judaizers, the circumcision sect, the mutilators of the flesh, they had their false doctrine. Paul is condemning them and encouraging people to go with true doctrine, with faithful doctrine. And that is what it means to be perfect, is to have then the most perfectly true doctrine according to Scripture, in part. John tells us, or Jesus tells us in John 4, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Truth means the truth of God's word. We worship him knowing what he loves, loving what he loves, hating what he hates, doing what he commands. In 1 John 1.3 we read, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with the son jesus christ note we proclaim what we have seen and heard in other words the teaching the doctrine that god has given to us in the word he's saying we proclaim that so that we can have fellowship because really knowing the truth understanding the truth is the basis for fellowship if we don't agree, we can't walk together with God. And so, perfection is being the most biblical in our true doctrine, but also in our practice. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. You know, loving God and being right with God isn't about doing what makes us feel good. It's about doing what God says is right. Keeping his commandments. But it's not enough just to keep them externally. I remember reading recently someone who was talking about salvation and they said, you know, the, the person who obeys God because they are afraid of God may not actually know God. You know, doing something good to compensate for the fear we have in our heart for our sin, doing something good because we want to feel better about that, we're not doing something sinful because it makes us feel afraid isn't what it means to be saved. We must do what is right from the heart. 1 John 5, 2 and 3 says, This we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For the love of God and we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Joshua, when he does the covenant renewal ceremony with Israel after they enter the promised land, says to them, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, the gods of Egypt or the gods of this land. Meaning, if you think God is wrong and you think his commandments are evil and you think it's burdensome to you to do what God wants, then you don't know God. Pick your new God. Kind of harsh. But we must be doing it from the heart. We don't do what God wants, like, oh, man, i got to do this or God's going to be angry. You know, we do that with our parents a lot. And when we were kids, 
Right? Oh, my parent, my father or mother is being irrational or foolish. I've got to do this because they want it done, but I don't believe in it. But with God, his ways are perfect. <coughs> his ways are truly righteous. They are good for us. They are a blessing to us. And we should not see them as a burden. So the perfection Paul is talking about is knowing the truth, doing the truth, and really doing it from the heart. Because that is what we are supposed to do. We, we desire what God desires. And to go on, doing it in love. Many people today, you know, they, they reimagine God. In fact, there was a big conference, and I, I had a book at one point, Reimagining God. And the goal was, the God of the Bible is kind of old-fashioned and harsh and limiting, and we need to find a God who really serves us better. And that was like the pagans in, in the days of the Old Testament. You know, they served the God of agriculture. You worship that God, and he'll bless your crop. Oh, you worship the God of heaven, what does he do? Promises you eternal life when you die? You know, that's not serving me now the way I want to be served. And so people reimagine God in our generation to be a God who serves them, who helps them. I remember somebody telling me about the 12-step program that they had gone to, and they were encouraged that what you need to do is then pray to a God that, you, that will help you overcome your problem. And you know, if the, the, the Christian God doesn't do that. But we'll help you make a God for yourself to worship and pray to, to encourage you day and night. This is where the world is. They love God of their imaginings because that God serves them. But we need to love God in the way God has called us to love him. We don't want to be called hypocrites, as Jesus called the Pharisees in Matthew 15, 7 through 9. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy you when his, when. He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Yeah, paying lip service to God, but not being from the heart, not from love for him, love for who he is and what he has done. It is not perfection. In fact, it is sin. But also, perfection is in, seen in our love for our brothers. We all know First John 4 says, anyone who says, I love God and hate my brother, hates his brother, verse 20 and 21 of chapter 4 of First John, that person is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must love his brother. And so this perfection includes love for God, but love for God is seen in the love we have for God's people. Weak or strong, easy to get along with or impossible to get along with. Do we love them? And even for our unbelievers. Uh, the Jews despised those outside of the church and persecuted them and hated them and didn't feel they could even be saved. And you had to go through a lot to be able to be a part of the Jewish nation and allowed to worship God at his temple. That wasn't love for them. That was 
contempt, scorn, hatred. Yeah, we have to hate their sin and rebellion and their hatred for God. But we recognize that we don't know who of them God might have called. We don't know who might be saved. Can you imagine if people hated Paul and killed him before he could be saved? (laughs) Yeah, obviously God works out all things according to the purpose of his own will. But there would be no Paul. Half the New Testament would be missing. Would the Gentiles even be saved? In God's providence, he made sure that didn't happen. But we don't know who God will choose. So, well, yes, we hate their sin and their rebellion. We don't help them in their wickedness. But we should hope for and pray for and love them as a potential brother or sister in Christ. Somebody who might have had Christ die for them that we don't know yet. And in the end, God will judge. But we are called to give our enemy a cup of water, pray for those who mistreat us, all of those things. And that is part of the perfection that Paul is talking about here. Paul had that feeling for his own people, the Jews. In Romans 10, he says, My brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. And we see that in this book. His desire was for the Gentiles to know God, to be saved. And that should be our desire for them. That is love. Love is not accepting a sinner in his sin and encouraging him to continue it. Love is sharing the gospel and calling for them to be saved and praying for their salvation. For those of you who have heard my testimony, you know that the man who led me to the church where I was saved, I had persecuted years earlier. Now, you don't know whether the insufferable, arrogant, obnoxious atheist might one day, not today, not tomorrow, two years down the road, might be saved. And so we we need to be careful of that. In this passage, Paul does bring up the weak Christian. And we will look at that more in our next message, as I will long run out of time before I get there. But I want you to think about that for a minute. You know, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you in time. There are those whose understanding is less perfect. They are less knowledgeable. They are weak. In this passage, we learn God will open their eyes. We read in Romans 14.1, they are to be treated as brothers, even though they're weak. They may be further from the perfections of God, not just in knowledge, but in behavior. Uh, sometimes they can be really insufferable people in the church. You know, they have a testimony that's credible, but their behavior is just atrocious. They're like a, a spoiled child or an arrogant, delinquent teenager. You know, as we grow from being babes in Christ to mature in Christ, we have a long way to go. Some people make that path very smoothly, just like some children do. Others, oy, the terrible twos, the teens, not good. That's what he's talking about here, though. They, are, you know, they may be further from perfection than we are, but they're still God's children. We're not to crush them. We're not to expel them, destroy them. Yeah, we're to make sure they don't teach foolishness and be silent about it. 
but we want them to grow in their faith, in their knowledge. So we tell them what is truth. We teach them, we encourage them, we demonstrate in our own lives what it means to be a Christian. And that is what it really means to be perfect here is the one who is most consistently biblical in his faith, most consistently biblical in his doctrine, in his life, in his heart, in his attitude towards others. That's what we're striving for. The Bible teaches we won't achieve this in our life. It calls us to the pursuit of this perfection, the pursuit of holiness throughout our entire sojourn in this world, that we might draw nearer and nearer to God while we await to be made perfect and brought to him. Paul says in this verse, I press on to make it my own. And again in verse 14, I press to the goal, the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. He says also that I do this since Christ has made me his own. Think about Paul's testimony. He's on the road to Damascus to crush this evil Christian cult. And he's going to arrest people and have them taken to Jerusalem. And some of them will die. And on the way there, he suddenly sees this great light from heaven. He hears a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Upon learning that it is the Christ whose people he is persecuting, he gets up and he goes and he does what he's told. You know, we're not talking about a man who logically sat down and rationally decided, you know, it would be better for me to be a Christian than to continue being a Jew. Because that wasn't the case for him. In this worldly sense, becoming a Christian was the worst thing he could do. He lost everything. No, he was apprehended by Christ. You can translate it that way. He was made a follower of Christ, and for that he is thankful. As part of God's eternal plan, he was chosen before the foundation of the world, we read in Ephesians 1.4. He presses on because Christ has made him his own. Now, before I was lost, now I am found. Before I was blind, now I see. Paul now knows what is important. He knows what is of value. We talked about that last week with all the things that Paul had to give up. He pressed on. Paul shares a little bit of his testimony of his struggles with sin in Romans chapter 7. He says, verse 14, I know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the thing I hate. Down in verse 18, I know that no good thing dwells in me, that is my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. He is not yet perfect. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. He is not yet perfect. But he says in verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. His passion, his desire is for God. He wants to be obedient to his law. 
He wants to be close to him, be right before him. But he sees in his members another law, waging war against the law of his mind and making him captive to the law of sin, which dwells in his members. He is trying, striving for perfection, but he is coming short and he sees the sin in his life limiting him from where he wants to be. And he cries out in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Here is a man writing the peak of his ministry, the peak of his life as a believer, saying, wretched man that I am, because he has looked into the law of God and seen himself. But he goes on to say, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then, I serve the law of God with my mind, but in flesh I serve the law of sin. Thanks be to God. His hope, the promise of perfection is there, held out for him. He will achieve it, not in this life, but he will achieve it. And he goes on in the next chapter, chapter 8, verse 12 to 14, to say, Brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, according, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We are called to put to death those things. To press on towards the goal of perfection in spite of our sin, in spite of our corruption, in spite of our desire of the flesh to thwart us. But to put our hope in God and to work towards that goal. He tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 11 and 12, But you, O man of God, flee from these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and to which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Flee from our sinful desires in the world. Pursue what is right before God. Fight the good fight of the faith. In 1 Corinthians 9.24, Paul says, All runners run the race, but only one receives the prize. Run that you might obtain it. Run that race. No matter what happens, no matter how many times you trip and fall. You ever run steeplechase where you run through the woods and over the... Been there. That's like the Christian life. Fall on your face in the mud, you get up and you keep running. You don't give up. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, we read that since we are surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in the sin which clings so closely to us and run with endurance the race set before us. Our sins and our sinful desires are described like weights. If you've ever tried running, imagine, you know, tying weights to arms and legs and around your neck. That is what we are to cast off and put away so that we might run the race with endurance. Looking to Christ Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, 
and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We are to despise those things that entangle us, the things that trap us, the things that, 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 that weigh us down and prevent us from reaching the goal. We're to push on towards the goal, no matter what. And notice he says also, forgetting what lies behind. What does that mean? Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward for what lies ahead. What lies behind for him? What we read about earlier in the chapter, that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, one of God's chosen people. That he was part of the best sect in, in Israel, the Pharisees. That he was zealous for God as a persecutor of the church. That he had all the righteousness that his sect believed could come from the law by perfect obedience to it. All of those things are what lay behind. All of those things that entangle us, that weigh us down. Our family who hates God and won't worship. Our friends who leave us. The prosperity we sometimes lose because we embrace Christ. The fleeting pleasures of sin. All of these things are what lie behind. And we count them as rubbish compared to the glory of knowing Christ. We are forgetting everything, forsaking everything that we have outside of Christ. That we might strive to be that new creation in Christ. Put on the new self, which means being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, we read in Colossians 3.10. That is our goal. Ephesians 4, 20 and 20 through 24 says much the same thing. It's not what you learned in Christ, talking about the life of sin, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupted through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. We are putting off that old life, putting on the new life. We are forsaking those things that were behind and pursuing the cross, pursuing the resurrection, pursuing eternal life, pursuing that close fellowship with God. I'm sure as Christians, we've all experienced it at times where you feel that God is here with me in my prayer. God is with me. He's leading me. As Psalm 73 says, he leads me by my hand like I was a little child. We know those times and to have them more and more and more is the goal Paul is talking about here. Pressing on to make that his own in this life. Uh, The question we have to ask ourselves, are we really happy where we are? Do we not feel a need to grow? Do we have no desire to be even nearer to God more often or all the time? Are we happy as imperfect, immature children? God has promised his spirit, the Holy Spirit, as our helper. And if we are willing, we desire, we are willing to work and able to work hard, we can grow in our Christian walk. That is what Paul is calling us to do here. That is what God is calling us to do here. Yes, we stumble from time to time, but as we read, 
If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. As long as we never give up, as long as we never quit, as long as we diligently persevere, we can advance our Christian walk throughout life, drawing nearer and nearer to God, to enjoy his fellowship, to enjoy blessed communion with him and with the saints throughout our life. If we diligently pursue that perfection that eludes us in this life, then we have even more confidence that we will possess it in eternity. That when we get to heaven, that we will get to heaven with the souls of men made perfect reside. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your mercies and grace. We thank you that you have made a way for us, not just to be saved, but to draw near to you in this life, even though we struggle with sin, even though we are weighed down by many things. Help us, Lord, to cast those weights aside, to unentangle ourselves from the sins of this life, and to press on towards the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.